In this lecture, we're going to move from outpatient care to inpatient care. So, uh, but we're going to see a lot of overlap between the two. As as I talked about last time, talking about outpatient care, you can't really talk about one without the other. They're they're sort of two halves of the same coin, right? A heads and a tails. Um, so we're going to kind of rotate around that. But I, I want to bring back this slide from previously to to remind you about how institutions of healthcare have changed. The first hospitals, and, and that word hospital, emerges back here um, during the during the Crusades, where European European um, kings were sending raiders basically into the into the holy lands so into the middle east to try to get so-called and i'm using scare quotes here get back the holy lands uh for christianity it probably didn't hurt that the holy lands were part of the islamic empire at that point and that's where the money was so raiders always go where the money is sort of so so if you look at the history of the Crusades from the Islamic perspective, they write about it as a bunch of European barbarians invading. Uh, so it's a little bit like the way way we tell stories about the Vikings invading Europe. Um, so the the Islamic Empire looked at the Crusades as as just barbarians from from Europe, which probably not that far off. Anyway, uh, <coughs> excuse me. The uh, uh, one of one of the the word hospital hospital comes from an order of knights called the hospitallers, uh, and, and and I can't say it in French, but it's a French it's a French word, and they set up sort of hospitals. What we would understand is really that sort of undifferentiated institutions of social welfare, but for specifically for people who are participating in the crusades and making that journey uh, to the Holy land. So, so the word hospital comes to us from the French, a, a French order um, and uh, of knights uh, hospitaler, again, can't say it right, but but it really comes from way back here. But the most of these institutions were tiny, like we're talking like 20 beds, you know, and it was really just kind of uh, a way place for people who were away from their home, right? Because we've talked about where, where in, you know, until the, until the early 1900s, did you want to get your health care? You got it at home. But if you were traveling from Europe uh, into the Holy Lands, right? So into the Middle East, there was no home to go to. So the idea of the hospitalers was they were creating these institutions to take care of people who were sick and injured, who were on their way to or from uh, the Holy Lands, as in particular as part of the Crusades. So remember, way back here, the institutions that we think of as hospitals today, these are kind of the proto-institutions, meaning the institutions that preceded the creation of, of hospitals, really, as we think of them today. And the hospitalers were a very small fraction uh, predating what we think of today as hospitals. And it wasn't really until 
the industrial revolution and the amount of and our accumulation of wealth because this these lines here represent the amount of wealth that we have and so really it wasn't until we started to see the explosion of wealth that we saw in the 1750s with the advent of the industrial revolution the creation the the beginning of the enlightenment the acceptance of science and the application of science to medicine that we really start to see institutions for the indigent and sick uh, indigent sick separating out from institutions for homeless people or just poor people right and even then it was still quite primitive and so what we've seen in the last 150 years was this incredible change in what it meant to have a hospital so let's talk about hospitals so uh, I'm going to highlight a few things from your book. There's a lot. This is a busy chapter. I'm going to highlight just five things. One, one, the first of which is advances in nursing. And one thing, if you go to work in the healthcare system, one of the things you have to understand is nurses run hospitals. Right? Uh, they may not literally sit as the CEO, but they provide the workforce uh, that actually runs the hospital. So nurses are really the backbone and nervous system of the hospital as we understand it. And the chief nurse of a hospital oversees typically half or more of the employees in the hospital. Half or more of the employees are engaged in providing nursing care of some shape or form. Not all of them are RNs, of course. A lot of them are aides, and but then also some many of them are higher level uh, providers. We've in the United States, the federal government has had a huge impact on hospital growth. So we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about there's a whole range of different ways that we can analyze and organize the way that we think about hospitals. I want to share a little bit about New Hampshire hospitals because you are taking a course at UNH and the process of hospital consolidation. And I think New Hampshire demonstrates it very nicely as a very small state with only 26 hospitals. I think New Hampshire demonstrates this consolidation wave very nicely. And then we'll close with a brief discussion of what makes a hospital particularly unique in terms of its management structure. And as a former hospital executive myself, uh, that's a piece of interest. So let's talk about nursing. So nurses really, like I said, are the backbone, the nervous system, the heart, if you will, of hospitals. And throughout most of history, nursing was much like medicine, um, a kind of trade uh, often carried out by poor people who didn't have any other options. So they were not, nurses were not professionally trained. They did the work and learned on the job. Uh, and the quality of the nursing profession, it really wasn't a profession. It, it was just a thing that someone did. A lot of times it was, you know, young women who didn't have other jobs and they didn't have the skills and the knowledge necessary to properly care for, um, uh, properly care for patients, or it was very primitive until Florence Nightingale. So Florence Nightingale really is the founder of modern nursing. So a little bit about Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale was uh, a, 
uh, born to a very British, excuse me, very British. I'm sure they were very British. They were also very wealthy, uh, a very wealthy British family who happened to be living in Florence, Italy at, at, at the time. So she was born in 1820 to a wealthy British family who happened to be living in Florence. As she came to maturity, she chose to go into nursing over a more conventional upper class life where she would have, you know, gotten married off to some some other wealthy man from another wealthy family and so forth. And she chose to kind of lead her own life. Um, and she chose to go into nursing, which is kind of cool. And there was very little professional training available at this point. But nonetheless, she pursued it. And in her work in London, was recognized uh, for her talents, her managerial talents, uh, and rose very rapidly to be the superintendent of a hospital in London, a large hospital in London. So think, think CEO. She was the CEO of a large hospital in London. Uh, during this time, during her life, the Crimean War happened, and this was a war between um, the uh, Britain and Russia for control of Crimea after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So Crimea, if you have, hopefully you've been following the news and you're aware of this, Crimea is a part of Ukraine and, uh, and Russia has over the centuries uh, conquered Ukraine, you know, back and forth. And Crimea kind of is, is, is this land bridge between Russia and Ukraine. And right now, Russia has taken it back as of 2014, had invaded the invaded Ukraine, excuse me, invaded Crimea in 2014 and, and grabbed it back. They have since, you know, last year they reinvaded or tried to invade Ukraine itself to try to take all of Ukraine as well as the Crimea, as well as Crimea. So this is a thing that's a landmass that's been fought over for a long time. Anyway, so at one point, Britain thought that they should own it. Um, and so there was a big war between between Britain and Russia for control of the Crimea. And um, 18,000 and at 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 the height of the war, 18,000 British soldiers were reported to be languishing in military hospitals with abominable conditions, right? The soldiers were dying from cholera and dysentery, which are basically diseases of filth. You get cholera by consuming someone else's uh, poo, basically. Um, and the way that that usually happens is the poo gets into the drinking water and then, um, uh, and then, that's how you wind up getting cholera. It's not transmitted in the air. It's not an airborne illness. It's a waterborne illness. And the way you get it is somebody with, with cholera. And the what happens when you get cholera is you, you vomit and have diarrhea uh, until you dehydrate and die. And it's a, it's a very, it's a deadly disease. And it's a really horrible way to go because you don't lose your mental faculties until the very, very end. So you know you're dying and you are suffering all the way up until the end. Um, so it's a disease of filth, dysentery, same sort of thing. Again, it's a it's a, a disease that triggers um, uh, diarrhea and you basically die from both of these diseases by dehydration. So Nightingale is aware of the Crimean War, hears about the plight of British soldiers who are who are dying uh, miserable deaths in British, British military hospitals in the Crimea. And she leaves her comfortable life again 
and heads to the Crimea, uh, where she finds, you know, these terrible conditions. And <clears throat> she implements, in particular, a, a program of sanitation, um, amongst other efforts. So, like I said, the diseases of cholera and dysentery, which have plagued military campaigns since the beginning of time, um, is a disease of filth. And so just simply implementing sanitation it reduces the, the transmission of these sorts of, of uh, diseases. So she, she, she goes there uh, and she is regarded as tireless in her role. And she was known for roaming the hospitals at night with a lamp. So this is, this is a, a drawing of her uh, walking through the hospital wards at night with the lamp. And um, and so when she returned to England, she became known as the lady with the lamp. Um, and you can see here down in the corner, this is a nursing pin. So when nurses graduate, they get they have a pinning ceremony and almost all nursing pins have a lamp on them because the idea um the culture of nursing celebrates the idea that nurses are tireless in their care uh, for patients. So she returns to England after the war is over, having, having um, made a major impact on the survival of, of British soldiers during the Crimean War. Uh, and campaigns to continue to improve military medicine and specifically nursing. And she was one of the first people to really rely on statistics. So she took extensive notes about the statistics, death rates and you know numbers of patients and all, all this stuff. So she had all this data and she was one of the first people to work with statistics. So today you'd think of her as a health economist, perhaps, um, where she relied on, on this relatively new field of statistics. And of course, bear in mind, there's no calculators or, or never mind, no computers. So everything's done by hand here. And so, so she really transforms hospitals and nursing care through her reliance on science. And, you know, we've been keep talking about this idea, right? So she is a late enlightenment figure. Um, and the application of science leads to the professionalization of medicine and nursing. So I just want to kind of recenter us on, on this progression through time. So, uh, so she's there in the 1850s, she returns to, to London, um, and continues to, to work, uh, to, to transform nursing care. So uh, in 1859, she publishes a book. Uh, so at the ripe old age of 39, she, she publishes a book, Notes on Nursing, What It Is and What It Is Not. That's a great title, right? Um, and this becomes a foundational text for nursing education around the world. Um, and in 1860, she founds the first Nightingale Training School at St. Thomas's Hospital. And by 1873, there are three Nightingale schools of nursing founded in the United States, including one at Mass General. Uh, <clears throat> by 1900, there were more than 400 nursing schools in the U.S. And notes on nursing continued to be a core text for the discipline 
for many, many years. So let's talk a little bit about the nursing profession. So early nursing schools were primarily an apprenticeship program similar to physician uh, education. So a kid, so a, a kid, uh, I call all my students kids. Uh, so a a student, a, a would be nurse would come to uh, to the nursing school. And the nursing school is in the hospital. So your you are 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 um, classes are organized in the hospital uh, where where nurses are learning basically through an apprenticeship. So they're following around a senior nurse who's teaching them how to do the things they're doing. In the United, in the United States, nurses associations gradually organized and lobbied for occupational licensing. Uh, eventually the, the RN or registered nurse recognition so that you can't, you can't uh, 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 with the idea that you would have to get a certain amount of education a certain amount of training, and then you would be recognized as an RN and you'd be able to, to command a higher income uh, for your work. So through the 20th century, professionally trained, here's, here's an interesting point that we think of, through the early 20th century, so from the 1800s in, into the 1900s, professionally trained nurses, they'd go through their training and then they would leave the hospital. So they do their training in the hospital. Then they would leave the hospital and go to private duty, uh, what we call private duty, which means they'd get hired by a wealthy family who maybe had uh, an elderly family member who had medical and nursing needs. So maybe dementia, or Alzheimer's, um, maybe other health issues that we didn't know how to treat. They would go into private duty. So they were treating patients in the home, right? Because again, where did we want to be treated? Through the, through the early 20th century, everyone wanted to be at home. It wasn't until hospitals in the 20s and 30s evolved into higher quality organizations where all that fancy new technology was being was being created and and located so that physicians could go in and do the remarkable innovative things that were happening at that time so it wasn't until hospitals kind of made that transition to being centers of technology that nurses that trained nurses went back to the hospitals and private duty stopped being the preferred um, the preferred outcome for your training. So, so you, so after in, it wasn't until the twenties and thirties that nurse, that, that the preferred employment was actually in a hospital, even though that's probably where we think of nurses the most today. And it's true, right? So more nurses are in the inpatient side or in hospitals than in any other organization. And nursing continues to evolve, right? So we had, you know, more and more education, more and more sophistication, um, and nursing becomes more and more formalized. So nursing continues to today to be primarily institution-based, though there are, uh, as we talked about in the last chapter, with the with the explosion of outpatient care, much like uh, outpatient care, right? It's that there and back again story. So nurses preferred to be on private duty meaning they're out out of the hospital and working in the home now we're you know in through the 20s and 30s up through the, the present nursing really moves back into the hospital and into other kinds of, of large institutions and now we're seeing roles for nurses kind of reverse and starting that flow back out though i will say 
very much nurses are still primarily institution-based, but you see them, of course, in, in ambulatory surgery centers. Uh, you see them in outpatient settings, outpatient clinics, as well as performing public health functions. Um, nursing research. So, so nurses regularly participate in the process of exploring, uh, uh, of exploratory science, looking at how to provide higher quality of care, particularly in the, in the inpatient setting. So let's transition now to talk about federal, the federal government's role in the growth of hospitals. So something to understand about the United States and its history is the federal government through World War I was a really, was a pretty insignificant uh, part of everybody's daily lives. The federal government did very little and almost everything was done by the states. So the states were much more powerful and you you probably thought of yourself more of as a citizen of New Hampshire with a secondary thought that you're a U.S. citizen as opposed to um, a U.S. citizen first. And then I happened to live in New Hampshire, but I could just as easily move to Massachusetts. There was a so the U.S. federal government was very weak. And the main reason the federal government was very weak is it had no money. Um, so the U.S. The, the Constitution allowed the federal government to tax, but it only, but it didn't have an income tax. And that's where the federal government today gets the vast majority of its money. So where did the U.S. government get its money prior to World War I? Well, the answer was through tariffs, right? So whenever you bring something in and import into the country from another country, um, the federal government would collect collect taxes on on imports so there were things like that so it really wasn't it wasn't until the 16th amendment to the constitution which ratified uh which was ratified in 1913 that allowed the federal government to create a federal income tax and at the time it was sold as oh we're only going to tax the rich um uh so so just you know never trust politicians when they say something like we're only going to tax the rich and it was a tiny tax it's like we're only going to tax the rich and it's only going to be a tiny tax uh and it'll never you know affect the rest of the population and just look at your uh paycheck next time and remember that it's just going to be a tiny tax and it's only going to affect the rich anyway the federal government begins to grow in its ability to do stuff once it actually has money. Uh, and as it gets more and more money, the federal government becomes the central power in US politics. And so today, like how often do you think about, how excited do you get about the election of your state legislature, right? Like, so, you know, New Hampshire has something like 400 legislators in its state legislature. If you live in New Hampshire, can you even name one uh, of them? Uh, we, for the most part, nobody pays attention to state politics anymore. It's all, you know, it's all federal politics all the time, which is unfortunate because our country is, the, the our government is really not designed, uh, even though we have the the federal income tax, it's really not designed to function that way. And a lot of the things that we think of as dysfunction are the result of us trying to run uh, the government as if run our government systems as if the federal government is supposed to be the primary actor and it's really not but nonetheless the federal government suddenly has enormous amounts of money available to it and so um at the end of 
World War II, we've spent all this money where the federal government is used to, you know, people are used to the federal government having this new big role. The war ends, we've got all, you know, we're, we've been, the federal government now has all this capability, what, what, what political scientists call state capacity. So the federal government has grown in size and complexity, and it now has a lot more capability plus a lot more money. And so one of the things that the federal government, our legislature decides to do is pass this bill, the the Hill-Burton Act or the Hospital Survey and Construction Act of 1946. Everybody calls it the Hill-Burton Act. Everybody that knows about such a thing, uh, such as you. So you'll refer to it as the Hill-Burton Act now. Um, basically, in 1946, there were there were still relatively few hospitals relative to the population, especially in rural areas. And in 1946, the population of the United States was still very rural. So Hilburton allocates federal funds to build hospitals, basically promises this is, this is a, a subsidy to the states. So the states put together plans to build hospitals uh, with a goal of having 4.5 bed community hospital beds per 1,000 people. Um, so, so the hosp so so the Hilburton Act promises money, federal funds from the federal government to the states. So the 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 point here is the federal government is not the one building the hospitals. The federal government is giving money to the state governments, which then funds uh, the construction of these new hospitals. So we hit this. <clears throat> so we hit this goal in 1980, um, and and the this this act uh, helps build about 40% of the new beds, meaning the new hospitals that are built. Now, if you remember from the last chapter, what happens in 1983 is we realize that spending on healthcare is out of control. Um, and we change the compensation for hospitals. And we suddenly see a decline in in compensation to hospitals, which then triggers a collapse of hospitals and a, 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 a reduction in the number of hospitals. So we, what effectively the Hilburton Act does is it overbuilds hospitals. So in conjunction with, you know, the, the demand for uh, hospitals, we have 1965 Medicare and Medicaid uh, help the elderly and indigent pay for hospital use. And so that triggers a, a demand for hospitals. So there's money suddenly that people could be spending on inpatient care, but no hospitals. So, so there's a demand. And so the federal government helps stimulate the supply of hospitals by subsidizing the building of more hospitals. So this is coupled again. So that's the 19, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, we know are the federal and, and joint federal state programs. Uh, that help pay for healthcare. We also talked about the emergence of um, private hospital insurance, the Baylor Plan, Blue Cross, that also pay for for hospitals. So, so insurance, right? The availability of, availability of insurance creates demand for more inpatient care, but it doesn't create the supply. And so, so again, Hilburton helps create the supply of 
uh, of healthcare. And so today it is normal for hospitals to get 30 to 60% of their revenue from Medicare and Medicaid in part because of the aging of the population. Right. Our, our population is getting much older. Many, many more people now qualify for Medicare uh, than before. As you probably know, the boomers are all reaching retirement age. The, and, you know, and and many of them, we had a, kind of an explosion of, of retirements during COVID because people are like, it's just not worth it. I'm already 65. I may as well go ahead and retire. Um, so we're seeing a lot of people drawing Medicare today. Um, and that really, the fact that Medicare... Is a, is a federal program. And the fact that they make up some, you know, Medicare reimbursement makes up some 60% of revenues for hospitals. Um, you, you know, you, if, if I'm paying, you know, if I'm the one paying the bills, I get to tell you what to do. And the federal government is not shy about using the fact that it pays the bills for most hospitals to implement um, and force changes in policy. So CMS sends out all kinds of directives to hospitals that if you take Medicare, you have to do these things, right? So this is um, this is from the financial statements from, from um, the parent company of... Uh, St. Joseph's Hospital, which is is in Nashua, uh, and this is in um, uh, this is uh, yeah, this is in I want to say this is in um, thousands, so it's two hundred fifteen million, and I think this is actually for St. Joseph's. Uh, sorry, I don't recall off the top of my head. Um, so so the point here is what it's showing is it, what this graph is showing you is the amount of money they make. So, so in 2020, they, they had $618 million in revenues. And of that 215 million came from Medicare and 139 came from Medicaid. So they pay, you know, so they're, so they're, they are heavily reliant on um, the revenues from the federal government. And so as a result, if CMS Right. Center for Medicare and Medicaid says, hey, if you take our money, you have to do X, Y, and Z. St. Joseph's is going to be is going to stand up, salute, and say, yes, sir, you know, uh, we will do that. And that's how the, you know, this that's how the federal government does a lot of its business, is it doesn't tell state level operators, hey, you have to do this thing. What it says is, here's our money. And if you take our money, you have to do this thing, right? So it's always, it's always couple, or it's not always, but it's often coupled with, here's some resources, but these resources come with strings attached. And that's not just healthcare, right? That's road building, that's schools, that's a whole slew of things. That's how the federal government is able to direct activities at the state level is they, it, it doesn't have the authority necessarily to just direct the uh, direct the behavior at the state level, but it can offer money with strings attached. So we, so I, I, I mentioned a second ago, the, the PPS, the change towards PPS from fee for service to PPS comes about as a result of the tax equity and fiscal responsibility act known as TEFRA. Uh, and that's an important one for you to remember. Uh, I will be asking about this on the exam. So there you go. Uh, in 1982, right? So in 1982, TEFRA gets passed. It changes a whole bunch of 
the way that the tax system works, but one of the things that comes out of TEFRA is the implementation of inpatient PPS in 1983. And we talked about this last time, right? We, so we shift away from cost plus to PPS reimbursement, right? Fixed reimbursement. So it's no longer, reimbursement's no longer based on cost. The result is it encourages a shift to shorter stays. Well, shorter stays means we need fewer beds. Fewer beds means we need fewer hospitals. And those shorter days, as we talked about last time, become much more intense, right? So we also see the shift away from inpatient care and inpatient stays at all to greater use of outpatient. Now, outpatient can, there is a lot of outpatient work or ambulatory work done in hospitals. But again, that that just reduces the number of beds and the and the stays that become uh, that remain inpatient are only the most intense, only the most dangerous procedures. Right. So between 1990 and 2000, 200 rural hospitals and 300 urban hospitals close. So just as we get to that magic number that Hill Burton was trying to get to in 1980, two years later, the federal government reverses course, changes the way that they reimburse hospitals and causes, quite effectively, causes 500 hospitals to go out of business in short order. So, you know, this is one of the problems with with having government agents make these decisions instead of letting the market make these decisions, right? We did, as it turns out, we didn't need 500 hospitals, and that's why they folded. So some important things that you need to know about if you're thinking about hospitals and understanding what is a hospital and, and how big and important is a hospital. So some 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 terms that we use to talk about, about hospitals. Number one is licensed beds. So this is the number of beds that the state has allowed the hospital to operate. So um, uh, I want to say Catholic Medical Center has the authority to operate something like 350 licensed beds. Maybe it's more than that, right? But they actually only staff, um, say, like 220 beds, right? So so the number of licensed beds is the maximum number of, of beds that a hospital can operate. The, the, the state gives the hospital permission, tells it, you may operate no more than 350 beds, let's say. But at any given time, Catholic Medical Center, if it if I've got these numbers right, it may indeed have 300, 300, 350 licensed beds. It's only operating about 200 licensed beds because it doesn't need all 350 beds because that's not the way we practice medicine anymore. So that 350 licensed beds was probably done at a time, you know, pre-PPS, pre so before the TEFRA and the change in the way we, we do business. So they maintain the license, but they don't actually staff those beds, meaning that there are, are and, and they may not even physically have the beds anymore, um, but how many how many beds actually have, have nurses um, that would be able to take care of patients? So how many, how many beds have nurses associated with them such that if a doctor said, hey, we want to admit somebody, there'd be a nurse standing next to the bed when the patient comes in. And so it's usually a much smaller number. Now, 
un, so so licensed beds and staff beds there's a difference right licensed beds are always greater than staff it's greater than or equal to the number of staff beds but typically greater than the number of staff beds average daily census is another way of of kind of measuring how many um uh uh patients are in the building at any given time. So you may have, you know, 220 staffed beds, but you might have an average daily census of 150 or 180. Hopefully it's something close to uh, the number of staff beds. And then we, another way of kind of looking at it is to look at the occupancy rate, which is the percent of staffed beds. So if I have a hundred staffed beds and I have 75 patients in the building I have a 75% occupancy rate, 75 divided by 100. So we definitely want to have as high an occupancy rate as possible because otherwise we have nurses standing around next to empty beds, right? So we want that occupancy rate to be fairly close to the number of staff beds. Otherwise, we're just wasting money on uh, manpower that's not needed. Another way that we measure hospitals and the and the amount of care they give is the number of discharges so the number of patients that are discharged from a hospital now why do we use discharges as opposed to admissions well in particular we use discharges because uh of uh ob patients right obstetrics patients so mom pregnant mom comes in and hopefully uh uh, pre uh, uh formerly pregnant mom and baby leave so we're one person gets admitted, two people get discharged. So we focus on discharges. Now, if you die, that's a discharge too. You're discharged in the morgue, essentially. Um, so so discharges is a better way of measuring uh, the number of patients that have been cared for by the hospital than by, um, than by admissions alone. And then average length of stay is the average number of nights that a patient stays in a hospital. So typically we see... <coughs> In small rural community hospitals, so we'll call we'll talk about what they, they, these these critical access hospitals have to have a length of stay less than three days. Um, but you might see average length of stay at a place like like Dartmouth Hitchcock, where they're doing much higher levels of acuity. Right, Dartmouth Hitchcock is a teaching host is a is a teaching hospital, a medical center where they are taking care of very sick patients. Um, uh, the average length of stay there is going to be much longer than the average length of stay at a community hospital. All right, so let's talk about some different facts about about hospitals. And there's like like I said, there's a bunch of different ways to kind of organize and think about the kinds of hospitals. So here's one way to think about it. Um, uh, we can think about community hospitals. These are uh, hospitals that are uh, owned and operated to care for the community. So some, you know, 84% of hospitals uh, in 2019, right? so in 2019, there were about 6,100 hospitals, about 85% of them were community hospitals, meaning they're, they're meant to take care of the community and they're organized to take care of the community. As opposed to um, psychiatric hospitals, so community hospital focused on uh, medical issues, psychiatric hospital, you're admitted for a psychiatric illness. So um, the New Hampshire State Hospital, for example, is a psychiatric hospital. So non-federal psychiatric, so it's a community-based non-federal uh, non 
hospital. Then we had about 208 federal hospitals and then another 116 of other flavors. Um, so looking at community hospitals, you know, hospitals, again, that are there to care for the community, uh, about, you know, close to 60%, 57% uh, in 2019 were not-for-profit meaning they are literally owned by the community. That's what, so a not-for-profit entity doesn't have any owners. Um, it is instead owned by the community that it exists to serve. So Wentworth Douglas, for example, is a not-for-profit community hospital located in Dover, New Hampshire. So that's one town over from uh, UNH, right? And so- no one, there are no investors that own Wentworth Douglas. Instead, Wentworth Douglas is owned in in concept by the people of Dover and the surrounding area that it supports. And we'll talk about how that how that works. About 24% of community hospitals are owned and operated by investors. So in this case, they are actually literally they have owners. You know, at the end of the day. Um, any profit that the hospital makes is turned over to the owners. And so they are for-profit entities. A not-for-profit, the difference between a for-profit and a not-for-profit is at the end of the year, if there's any money left over in the form of profits, those profits can be given to the investors who own the pro own the entity, right? So Portsmouth Regional Hospital, which is in Portsmouth, again, another town not far from, uh, two towns over from, from Durham, where UNH is, is an investor-owned organization. So at, at the end of the year, any money that's left over, the Portsmouth Regional can do one of two things with it. It can, it can take those profits and reinvest them into the hospital and make the hospital bigger and better and provide higher quality of care, or it can pay out a dividend, right? Meaning it pays out whatever cash the board decides to pay out can be paid out to the owners. A not-for-profit entity, if it has any money left over at the end of the year in the form of profit, must reinvest all of the extra money, all of the profit must be reinvested back into the organization to make it bigger and better. So again, the, the key difference between a not-for-profit entity, and this applies to hospitals, but it also applies to any nonprofit organization, a university, for example. So, well, UNH is a isn't a good example because it's a state and it's a state entity, but um I'm trying to, you know, Harvard University is a not-for-profit. Any money left over at the end of the year, that any profit that Harvard University makes has to be reinvested back into Harvard University to make it a better, bigger organization to, to pursue its mission. But a for-profit entity like Southern New Hampshire University, that's a for-profit entity. It's owned by investors. At the end of the year, if there's any profit left over, Southern New Hampshire can split that money into money that goes back into making Southern New Hampshire University a better organization and or it can pay out money to its investors. Okay. And and so then we have, you know, 19%, you know, uh, about a fifth of hospitals are state and local government owned. So again, like the state hospital, the New Hampshire State Hospital, it's a psychiatric hospital. 
not a community hospital, but that's an example of a of a state of a of an organization that's owned and operated by the state. <clears throat> uh, some other ways to look at uh, community hospitals are um, two thirds in in 2019. Two thirds of community hospitals were affiliated with a system. So, uh, uh, Dartmouth Hitchcock has a is a system. And uh, Cheshire Medical Center down in Keene is a part of the Dartmouth Hitchcock system. I met, uh, and then thirty three percent, about a third at the time, were were independent. Uh, I mentioned, I just mentioned Wentworth Douglas Hospital, which is a not for profit hospital in Dover. It became affiliated with or part of the Mass General Brigham system. I want to say actually in 2019, maybe 2020, somewhere around there, it joined the it joined the Mass General Brigham system. So it is no longer an independent entity. It is now part of a system. And that's the trend. Um, once upon a time, not that long ago, most hospitals were independent, uh, independent, independently operated. Over the since the 80s, since Tefra. It has become harder and harder for hospitals because they get reimbursed less. It has become harder and harder for hospitals to operate on their own as independent entities. And so ever since 1983, when PPS went into, into place, hospitals either went bankrupt and, dis, and, and, and ceased operation, or they have been gradually becoming part of larger and larger systems trying to accomplish uh, trying to get economies of scale. So getting together, consolidating all the different operations. So like a lot of the back office stuff like HR, you know, if if two hospitals get together, they really don't need two separate HR offices. They can just consolidate it all into one. And so, you know, if you've got two people doing payroll and you join up the systems, you can fire one of those people and save that salary. And so uh, that's what is driving a lot of hospital consolidation are the opportunities to accomplish economies of scale. Uh, two thirds of community hospitals are urban, only one third are uh, rural. So the US population is mostly an urban population. And we take some some efforts, We and we'll talk about this in a minute, to make sure that hospitals continue to exist in the rural environment, even though most people, most U.S. citizens are urban, uh, live in urban environments. So another, you know, so one way we can we can classify hospitals is by their ownership. We can talk about them as public hospitals, private hospital, private nonprofit, and private for profit. So a public hospital is a government owned. Uh, entity, uh, private hospital, and then you have private nonprofits like Wentworth Douglas and private for-profits like Portsmouth Regional. We can also think of them uh, in terms of the kinds of service they offer. So like a general hospital, so Mass General Hospital has provides general care, like all different kinds of care. But you can also have specialty hospitals. So you can, um, there, uh, my sister once upon a time worked for um a orthopedic hospital. There's uh, the hospital for special sur surgeries is an orthopedic hospital in New York City. Um, so we have ho specialty hospitals that do just one kind of specialty. So, for example, just um, 
orthopedics or just cardiology. Psychiatric hospitals has it is commonly it has been common throughout time uh, throughout the centuries that you have hospitals that focus on psychiatric care because it's very different than medical care. Um, rehabilitation hospitals, so so you go from uh, you know you have a major accident, for example, you get in a car accident and you uh, have a spinal cord injury. You'll get your initial care in a general hospital, and then uh, once you're stabilized, you'll be sent to a rehabilitation hospital where you'll get extended care uh, to try to help you to, you know, maybe walk again or or whatever it is that to to kind of bring you up to whatever new level uh, you can be at. And then children's hospitals. So think of most a lot of my students want to go work at Boston Children's Hospital. That's just one of many children's hospitals. We have Shriners also in Boston. Um, I want to say there's another children's hospital out in uh, in the western part of of Massachusetts. There aren't any children's hospitals in New Hampshire. We just don't have a large enough population to support something like that. So children's hospitals are typically in in urban environments. So this is a map of all of the hospitals in in. Uh, the state of New Hampshire. So we have 13 PPS hospitals, which means they're, they operate under the prospective payment system. So these are larger hospitals and you can see they're green. They're down here, uh, mostly in the South where most of the population is. And then we have 13 critical access hospitals. Um, and they have, there's a bunch of restrictions on uh, what they can do. Um, in order to be a critical access hospital. But one of the things about critical access hospitals is they still get to do cost plus. And so that's the difference between a PPS hospital and a critical access hospital is the way that they get their revenue. PPS hospitals operate under that fixed payment, right? So if, if I get admitted to Catholic Medical Center, which is a PPS hospital, Catholic Me and, and I get a particular DRG, a, a, a uh, Diagnosis-related group, Catholic Medical Center gets told, hey, you're going to get $5,000 for admitting Professor Bonica, as opposed to if I was to go to um, Alice Peck Day, right, which is number 14, it's over here, um, right next to uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock. If I went to Alice Peck Day, um, they would get cost plus reimbursement. So instead of being told, hey, you're going to get $5,000 regardless of what it costs, Alice Peck Day, if I got admitted there, Alice Peck Day would calculate all the costs that it, all, all the costs that they spent on me, all the expenses they spent on me, and they would report a, a cost and then they would get cost plus reimbursement uh, for the care that they're giving. Now, Now, what's unique about critical access hospitals is they have a couple of restrictions. They are meant to serve underserved communities. So typically, they're meant to be serving small rural communities to make sure that and they get that, that cost plus reimbursement in recognition that they're just not going to have the density of patients to generate revenue to stay in business. Um, and so there's a couple of restrictions on critical access hospitals. First, they can't have more than 25 beds. So they aren't, they aren't allowed to be licensed for more than 25 beds. Their average length of stay has to be no more than three days. So if you're up here at um, Upper Connecticut Valley uh, or down here at 
where's my favorite is Andrew Scoggin. Um, uh, Andrew Scoggin is in Berlin. I always get a, I, uh, I'm friendly with the, with the CEO up there, Mike Peterson. He's a great guy. Uh, we do a lot of stuff together through some professional organizations and he usually takes one of my students each year as an intern. So I always get a, I always have fun going up to visit, um, uh, the student at, at, uh, up in Berlin, because then I go camping, uh, even farther North up. Uh, 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 so I go up, visit my student. And then I go up to, um, uh, a New Hampshire state park called Mollajawak, which is, uh, up in Errol, which is North of Berlin. Uh, and it's a beautiful river. Uh, it's a campground built around the Androscoggin river. And, uh, so I'll go visit the student then I'll go camping. So I'd always get excited about when I get a chance to go do that. Uh, and I've already got a plan for it this year. So I'm excited. Uh, as you can tell. So again, critical access hospital, no more than 25 beds, no more than a three day average length of stay. And then they're supposed to be 35 miles from each other. Excuse me, 35 miles from another hospital. Now, the now some of these are not <clears throat> more than 35 miles. So one of the reasons you could allow for uh, uh, having hospitals that are closer than 35 miles is geography. So we have a very, you know, we have the white mountains running right through the middle of the state. Um, and so geography can make 35 miles, a very difficult 35 miles. So the governor can, uh, can determine that communities, even though the, even though as the flow, excuse me, as the crow flies, uh, 30, it, a, two hospitals might be within 35 miles of each other. The governor can determine that, uh, can waive that 35 mile uh, uh, minimum distance. So three reasons, again, critical access hospital, three requirements, 25 beds or less, average length of stay of no more than three days and 35 miles from each other. And the idea here is critical access hospital isn't there to provide high levels of care. It's it's there to provide that, that um secondary care that we talked about, right? It is there to handle emergency care and OB care if it can. And that's it, right? It really is just kind of emergencies and immediate uh, low level care. Anything that's more complicated than that, the patients are supposed to be sent on to one of the community hospitals where they can get higher levels of care. We have five other specialty care uh, uh, facilities um, some rehabilitation hospitals, uh, Hampstead hospital is a psychiatric hospital and it has just recently merged with the New Hampshire state hospital. So it's now part of the same organization. Um, and then we have the veterans affairs medical center, which actually isn't a hospital because it doesn't have any inpatient capability. Uh, so I'm not really sure why we listed it as a hospital, but nonetheless, it, uh, uh, this is from our, the New Hampshire New Hampshire Hospital Association. So one of the things that was really fascinating was when I got here in 2015, almost all of these hospitals were independent. And today, almost none of them are. I think there's three left that are still independent. Um, I have not affiliated in some way. Um, so looking at just the PPS hospitals, right? These are the larger hospitals. Uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock is the only teaching hospital. Um, and you can just kind of look at, to get a sense of size, look at the revenues that they bring in. Um, and this is in thousands. So so Dartmouth-Hitchcock, 
uh, brought in $3 billion in revenues, right? As opposed to, and then we have the smaller ones uh, like uh, Frisbee, which is in Rochester, New Hampshire, just up the a couple towns north of uh, UNH brought in 355 million. So you see, uh, uh, and this is gross patient service revenue, not the actual amount they, they collect. Um, you can see their occupancy rates. So the smaller hospitals tend to have lower occupancy rates. Um, they tend to have lower um, lengths of stay. You can see Dartmouth has the longest length of stay followed by Catholic. Uh, Catholic, after Dartmouth, Catholic and Elliott are the two largest. You can see again, staffed beds, 260. I, was, I wasn't too far off. I was saying 220. It's actually staffed 220, 261. Elliott staffs 255. Uh, Dartmouth, the largest hospital, staffs 422. Um, so, uh, and then Wentworth Douglas, which I talk about all the time because it's literally just one town away, has 118 uh, staffed beds. So again, New Hampshire has three, 13 critical access hospitals. I've already kind of hammered this. It's actually should be 30, 35 miles. So I need to correct that. Uh, and they get the cost plus a mere 101%. Uh, uh, but nonetheless, that's better than uh, for them than, than not getting that. So other hospitals I mentioned, we have some psychiatric hospitals, some rehabilitation hospitals, and then we have the Manchester VA. Um, this is kind of giving you a sense of who's connected to who. Right? So you can see Dartmouth Health includes these hospitals. Uh, HCA, you know, which is a for-profit chain, owns Portsmouth, Parkland, which is in Derry, and Frisbee, which is in Rochester. Granite Health uh, is headed by Catholic Medical Center, but includes Monadnock and Huggins. Solution Health, one of the more recent affiliations, includes Elliott in Southern New Hampshire. North Country Health, which is a really unique system, includes AVH, Weeks, and Upper Connecticut. And what's unique about North Country Health is all three of these hospitals are critical access hospitals. As far as I know, no other, there is no other system that is only constituted of critical access hospitals in the United States. So this is kind of a unique animal. Um, so the only ones that are independent as of last time I looked at this were these three, Littleton, Cottage, and Spear. And I imagine that's just a matter of time before they also join up. And again, the reason is with the change in reimbursement in the 80s, it has become progressively harder and harder for hospitals to operate on their own. They really have to join together into systems in order to achieve economies of scale, to eliminate all the you know excess administrative overhead so that they can really focus on providing top quality care. All right, so now let's talk about governance because this is something that makes a hospital different from uh, you know a manufacturing company, for example. And it's a historical uh, reality. Uh, but it is it is something that's kind of unique and kind of interesting. So all nonprofits are corporations. Okay, so all nonprofits are corporations. They just happen to be nonprofit corporations. All for-profit corporations are also corporations. You can have, but you can have businesses that are not corporations. So a physician that hangs out a shingle and says, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm in business as Dr. Smith is, 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 uh, a sole proprietor. Um, there are some other forms of businesses as well. It's a little more complicated. 
So, but all corporations have to have a board of directors or a board of trustees. Typically, we call the board of a not-for-profit a board of trustees because they've been entrusted with the care of the non-for-profit board of directors. It, it, two different words means the same thing. It's a board that provides govern oversight of the organization. And the number one thing that the board does for any corporation is it hires the hospital management. So the board of trustees of, for example, Wentworth Douglas, and let me just kind of do this as prior to, because it gets a little messier once we start thinking of Wentworth Douglas as a part of MGB, but let's say the pre-2019 Wentworth Douglas. The board of trustees for Wentworth Douglas, again, before they joined MGB, so when they were independent entity, the board of trustees for Wentworth Douglas represent the owners of the hospital. And you say, well, Professor Bonica, you just said that there are, are no owners of Wentworth Douglas. Well, there are in this in a sense. Wentworth Douglas, when it was an independent entity, was owned in a sense by the broad community, right? Owned by the people who live in Dover, live in and around Dover and use Wentworth Douglas for their care. So the board of trustees has a fiduciary duty. They have a duty to make sure that Wentworth Douglas operates in the best interest of the community that it exists to serve. And this is true of all nonprofits as, and, and then it is true, the difference between, so, so if you're thinking of the American Cancer Society, if you're thinking of, you know, uh, a soup kitchen, a church, anything like that, there's going to be a board of trustees if the organization is a not-for-profit. And that board of trustees is responsible for making sure that the organization runs uh, and operates to support the community that the organization exists to serve. So if it's a church, right, it'd be the, the board of trustees of the church are supposed to make sure that the church is operated to provide services to the congregation. And so the board of trustees represents the, the, the people that the organization is supposed to be serving. And the number one most important thing that the board of trustees does is hires professional management and it hires the CEO, right? And then the CEO hires everybody else that runs the hospital. So the CEO, the chief executive officer oversees the execution of the hospital strategy. They, 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 he hires and fires all of the other employees, the board of trustees should not be involved in hiring and firing anyone other than the CEO. Um, then the CEO hires everyone else. The CEO manages the day-to-day -day operations. They manage the finance and they manage strategy with in conjunction with the board. So the board is supposed to oversee the overall strategy, but the CEO is supposed to, de to develop that for the board. And this, in and, and in a hospital, this includes hiring all the, um, nursing staff, most of the technicians, and all of the non-clinical employees. So, so it's the CEO supervises the, um, the chief nursing officer and through the chief nursing officer supervises all of the nurses in the, in the facility. They hire and fire the technicians that work in the laboratory and the x-ray, you know, uh, uh, or imaging center, uh, and so on and so on. Plus all the dietary techs, all the, um, 
all of the um, uh, housekeepers, whatever else you can think of, right? Now, if this was a church, for example, the minister, assuming that that person operates as the CEO, would hire everybody, like, like everybody would work for the minister. What's unique, and I really want you to pay attention to this, what's unique about a hospital is that there's this other um, tranche, right? This other group of people that function inside the hospital and are not employed, hired, and fired by the CEO. And this other group of people is the medical staff, right? So, um, so the doctors and other licensed providers that are uh, operating in the hospital, so not nurses, but you know, doctors, psycholog psychologists, and so on, um, not employed by the hospital, right? Uh, uh, they are given privileges to to work in the hospital. So remember, this is the hospital is the doctors is a doctor's workshop. The hospital exists to provide services to the community by creating an environment where physicians and other providers want to come and do the thing they do, right? Take care of their patients. So the board of trustees has to grant privileges to the providers. So you can't, a doctor can't just show up at a hospital and say, hi, I'm a doctor. I'm here to, I want to take care of patients here. No, the board of trustees grants privileges to a doctor. So if a doctor shows up at one of Douglas and says, hi, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, I'm really good at what I do. I want to, I want to, um, uh, do surgery here at Wentworth Douglas, the board of trustees has to approve that new orthopedic surgeon. They probably say yes, because orthopedic surgeons bring in lots of money for the hospital. But but nonetheless, um, the a, a doctor can't just show up at a hospital and start practicing at the hospital. They have to be approved by the board of trustees. And the process is, is, of approval comes through the medical executive committee or the MEC, right? So this is a committee of physicians uh, made up from the medical staff. So they, when you get privileges, you join the medical staff, um, which are the individual licensed providers that are privileged to practice in the hospital. So the MEC is drawn from the medical staff and the medical staff reviews the credentials of all the providers that want to work at Wentworth, you know, at a hospital, whatever it is, whether it's Wentworth Douglas or someplace else. And then the MEC is responsible for setting medical policies, policies around how care will be provided. And so this is this is what's really unique. This is unique to a hospital. And I want you to remember this for the test. This is what is unique about a hospital is you have these two separate command structures, if you will, in the hospital. And they obviously interact all the time. Um, but the board of trustees oversees both of them, right? Uh, the hospital manager, the board of trustees appoints the CEO. The CEO hires everybody except for the medical staff. The, and, and when we say medical staff, we're talking about physicians and other licensed providers. The CEO hires all the nurses and all those other kinds of people, right? And the medical staff runs the privileging process. So that's what's unique about a hospital is it's got this, this kind of uh, two chains of command, Right. All right. 
So last slide, hospitals have to be licensed, certified, and accredited. So healthcare is, is as I've said before, governed at the state level. Um, hospitals, nursing homes, insurance companies, all this stuff is, is, is licensed by the state and, and regulated at the state level. Now, the Department of Health and Human Services, DHHS, at the federal level, right, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, there's also a New Hampshire State Department of Health and Human Services, same mass Department of Health and Human Services, or something like it, right? But the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services certifies hospitals for participation in Medicare and Medicaid. So this is, again, how even though the depart the U.S. federal government can't regulate hospitals directly, what it can do is say, you know, we can't tell you what to do, but if you want Medicare money, you have to meet our conditions of participation. And since some 60% of uh, a hospital's revenue is going to come from Medicare and Medicaid, when this, when CMS, which is the division of HHS that governs this, the Medicare and Medicaid, says, all right, hospital, do X, Y, and Z. Uh, or we won't send you any Medicare money. The hospitals all say yes, sir, and drive on. Right? They do what they do what CMS says. So you have to meet conditions of participation uh, in order to get federal money. Um, and in order to do that, you have to be accredited uh, by an organization. Um, and there are a couple of different ways to do it. There are a couple of different organizations that can do this for you. Um, one of them, the most common one, is the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, or known in the industry now as Joint Commission. When I was first in the industry, we called it JCO, um, but they rebranded and wanted everybody to call them the Joint Commission because that's so much nicer. Trust me, nobody, nobody get. It's never a good day when Joint commission inspectors show up, whether you call them joint commission inspectors or JCO uh, inspectors. Nobody's happy uh, when the joint commission shows up because nobody wants to be inspected, right? Because if the joint commission shows up and starts walking around and decides that you have not met, your, met the conditions of participation, they will not deem you, right? So this process called deeming, right? So they have the, the authority to... Um, to tell HHS that a hospital has either met the conditions of participation or failed to meet the conditions of participation. And if the joint commission comes into your facility and says that you have not met the conditions of participation, you stop getting Medicare money. So it's a big deal. Um, there are a couple of other organizations that'll do this, and uh, uh, but joint commission is the biggest one. And if you work in healthcare, you will come to uh, you will you will become intimately familiar with the requirements of the Joint Commission. All right, so that's it for um, for our discussion of inpatient care. Next time we'll talk about managed care.